corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Tony Sundermeyer. I'm one of the pastors here at First Presbyterian Church in Atlanta. It's so good to be with you this morning in worship. A special welcome to those of you who are worshiping with us for the first time. We do hope and pray that you feel at home, uh, feel connected. We're going to do our very best to help make that possible. Uh, and to that end, I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to invite you to move about the sanctuary, find a face you don't recognize. Let's say good morning and welcome to First Presbyterian Church. Will you join me in prayer? O Lord, may these ancient words of Scripture find us today where we are and open us up to the presence and power of your Spirit. May your word both comfort and challenge us, and may it guide us to be evermore like your Son and our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. Robert Bella was America's most influential sociologist of religion. He wrote his best-known book, Habits of the Heart, in 1985 and included in it an interview with a nurse named Sheila Larson. This is how Sheila described her religion to Dr. Bella. I believe in God, but I'm not a religious fanatic. I can't remember the last time I went to church, yet my faith has carried me a long way. It's Sheilaism, just my own little voice. It's just to try to love yourself and be gentle with yourself. Ever since, Sheilaism has become shorthand for a hyper-personalized, do-it-yourself religion where one's deepest convictions about God and what to devote your life to are not transcendental truths from above, but are internal preferences from within. Indeed, Sheilaism quite consciously does not begin with God to understand what God loves and requires. Sheilaism 
begins with what Sheila loves and requires to understand God. Now, if we look around the American landscape, this kind of religious individualism is not hard to find. It was Thomas Jefferson who said, I am a sect myself. He even made his own New Testament. And he took his red pen and he struck through all the miracles of Jesus so that only Jesus' ethical teachings remained. Similarly, it was Thomas Paine who said, my mind is my church. Now, maybe we have some sympathy with this. And maybe as Americans, there tends to be a little Sheila in all of us. Our cultural instincts have always been more ruggedly individual than collective. We love to go it alone. We love to rely on ourselves to achieve whatever needs achieving. And today we are all wrapped up in technology that lets us customize every aspect of our lives. From the TV we watch on demand, to our carefully cultivated list of Facebook friends, to the precise coordinates where our Uber driver will come pick us up. And so maybe we are not surprised that a Gallup poll asked Americans whether an individual should arrive at his or her own religious beliefs independent of any churches or synagogues. And a full 80% said yes. Now, given that and, and how different and complex each of us is, we might have expected Sheila's spirituality to be unique and powerful and nuanced. But here's the great irony Bella identified. Sheilaism is often boring and utterly conventional. Maybe it's a theology that is a carbon copy of one or another political platform. Maybe it is some vague notion of self-fulfillment. But whatever it is, it is often not a window into the divine as much as a mirror of the prevailing culture. Our scripture passage today from Acts chapter 2 takes us all the way back to the very earliest church, that small band of Christians living in Jerusalem shortly after Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, right before today's passage, Acts tells us how God has sent the Holy Spirit to the apostles and that fledgling church. And today's passage is not so much a story as it is a summary of the spiritual life of the earliest church. And so what insights about Christian discipleship do we see here in Acts? And I think there are at least three. The first is that the early Christians were devoted to a distinct community. The second is that distinctness led them to a countercultural life. And third, no matter how devoted they were, it was God who enabled their success. Now first, the writer of Acts tells us that the earliest Christians were not a philosophical society. They were not a rotary club. They weren't even a soup kitchen. 
The early church was a community of distinct teaching and practices. Acts says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Let's look at those four things. When the apostles taught, they were not mere spiritual advisors. And as much as they relied on the gifts of their minds and their own experience, their job was to pass down Jesus' teaching. They interpreted the very same Hebrew scriptures from which Jesus taught, and eventually interpreted the writings of the New Testament. And they reflected on and figured out over time the meaning of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And to be sure, just like now, there were deep theological disagreements. And the apostles left some things veiled in mystery. And not everyone saw eye to eye on every detail. But here's the thing. No one was confused that there was a core Christian message, a distinct revelation from God that came from outside of all of them, and not just the world's wisdom. It was the conviction that our brokenness is more than we ever could have feared, but that God has accepted us more than we ever could have hoped. The second mark of the early church was fellowship. Now, I have to confess, I have never been inspired by the word fellowship. I can only think of coffee and tiny powdered donuts. What does fellowship mean here? Before I joined my law firm, I served as a law clerk to United States Court of Appeals judge. And like the old model of masters and apprentices, my co-clerks and I worked very closely with our judge and we loved him. We discussed the law, we prepared for oral argument, we drafted opinions, and we watched a lot of funny YouTube videos together. We ate lunch with him for two to three hours every single day. And around that same lunch table, we met many of the 80 other law clerks who had served for him over a quarter century, and we heard so many tales about the others that we felt like we knew them. We had a deep bond to each other through our loyalty to our judge. And on our last day that year, my judge made one final request. He said that whenever one of his law clerks comes to us and needs something, if we were at all able to help, do it. If we were at all able to help, do it. And they, he said, will do the same for you. I think that is the kind of fellowship the early church knew, the kind where you and I and all of us were not mere acquaintances, but rather share a deep bond together because we follow Jesus Christ, who is himself our judge in love and in grace. The third mark, we are told, is the breaking of bread. That meant celebrating the sacrament of communion, to be sure, but it also meant sharing actual meals. Now, whenever I travel out of town alone, I will often still go out to a restaurant and eat dinner at a table all by myself. 
My wife and my daughters constantly remind me how horrified they are of this. And while I still do it, I think they're on to something true. The early church knew, as we do, that to eat together is to get to know someone, is to have fun. But the early Christians also knew that breaking bread together also sends a message. Think of all the controversies Jesus started by all the unworthy people he chose to eat with. Like Jesus, the early church welcomed everyone to the table, rich and poor, the well-connected and the cast aside. And that was scandalous back in the day. But the early Christians not only bonded that way, they also sent the message that they would defy social norms at those tables, which is where their world often most rigorously enforced status and exclusion. Last, the earliest Christians worshiped and prayed together. But notice how the reference is not to prayers, but to the prayers. Now, this could have meant the set prayers at the Jewish temple in which many of the early Christians still participated. It could also have meant those deep communal prayers that we know, like the Psalms and the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven. And so if the first insight is that the earliest Christians were devoted to a distinct community, the second is that their faith called them to something countercultural. In the part of the passage that could have shocked Adam Smith or Steve Forbes, just as it may perk our ears up today, the writer of Acts tells us that the earliest Christians had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, my own humble view is that this is not a political endorsement of socialism over capitalism or any other kind of economic system. See, the Bible speaks so much more often in terms of ends rather than specific means. But even if it's not political, we can all catch that it is dramatic. Now, this passage could mean quite literally that the earliest Christians pooled everything they had together and had no more private possessions. It could also mean that while they still owned things, they would sell them whenever the common good required it. I think what's important, however, is that of all the details about the early church, the writer of Acts could have picked he picked this one, something that is hard and countercultural. Last year, University of Edinburgh professor Larry Hurtado published a fascinating book called Destroyer of the Gods. It looked at the first three centuries of Christianity and asked as a historical matter, how did Christianity develop faster than every other Roman Empire religion. And of all the religions and of all the cults through that mighty Roman Empire, how is it that all these centuries later, Christianity and Judaism, and only Christianity and Judaism, remain? The answer, says Hurtado, is not what 
to date, most scholars had focused on. That is, the ways the Roman Empire helped spread Christianity and make it flourish. The, the Pax Romana, the, the common language, the vast network of roads throughout the empire. Rather, Hurtado claims it was Christianity's distinctiveness. And while we often think of Roman persecutions and martyrs dying for the faith in those early days, Hurtado says that by the numbers, martyrdom wasn't a common risk. The bigger issue was that everywhere a Christian turned, there was a different Roman god. Household gods, city gods, empire gods, business gods. You simply couldn't live a life that affirmed, you shall have no other gods before me and not be noticed. You had to be a little countercultural. And so it was the Christian investment banker who wouldn't do the ritual sacrifice at the marketplace. It was the Christian family member who could no longer worship the household gods sitting right on her dinner table. Now, as I said, these mostly were not life and death matters, but to be sure, they were uncomfortable. You had to make a choice. You had to explain yourself. And so Hurtado says that Christianity succeeded precisely because it had this tension with the culture. It produced lives that were distinctive enough for no one to miss that something new and powerful was going on. But at the same time, lives that were not so completely alien that they were incomprehensible. I think that's a really important point for us in the church today. We have to use our judgment with God's help to find that persuasive balance that we are all looking for as Christians in the world. But however we strike that balance, Hurtado's point is that Christianity flourished precisely because you could tell an insider from an outsider. Now, all of this may sound awfully daunting until we remember the good news of the third point, that it is God who enabled the early Christians' faithfulness and who enables our own. Acts 2.47 concludes our passage this way. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. To be sure, our choices matter, and we are called to be devoted to our Christian life. The Greek word for devoted means to attend constantly to something. But at the same time, and in a mysterious tension, it is God who is active in the world. It is God who is Lord over the church and who, through the Holy Spirit, directs and empowers all of our devotion and all of our service. Indeed, the point of the reading from Luke's Gospel this morning is that God's response to prayer is certain. And what God provides in response to prayers, we are told, is the Holy Spirit, which is to say the very power we have from God to live the life of faith. And so I close with this. The early Christians came from all walks of life. They didn't have fancy degrees 
They weren't experts in theology. And like us, they certainly weren't perfect. But they knew they had found something distinct and life-giving, not from themselves, but from the Holy Spirit and from the community. And they devoted themselves to that fellowship. And they took that confidence out into the world in real countercultural ways that nobody could miss. Do you have that kind of community? Do you have the support you need and the deep bonds for a confident faith? If you don't, I hope you would join us because I bet you'll find those things right here. And if you already have that, ask yourself this. Where is God calling you and me to be more distinct as Christians? Where is God calling you and me to be more devoted to this church and to our common bonds we share together? And where is God calling you and me to take maybe just one countercultural step for the sake of the gospel? If the earliest Christians could do it, so can we. And God has promised to provide all the help you and I will need for the journey. And so ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
by the power of the Holy Spirit, God has called us and forms us to be a devoted and distinct people. May that devotion and distinctiveness bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may his peace, a peace which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in him this day and every day of your life.